It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Is property still a good investment? As the market gets stickier in the run-up to Brexit, experts present The Money Show with the latest evidence about where the property market may be heading next. I'll be revealing details of the next FT Money Reader event, What Would a No-Deal Brexit Mean for Your Finances?, giving you a chance to grill the FT's top political commentators. Meryn Somerset-Webb will join us on the line to share her thoughts on the 10th anniversary of the financial crash. And could you do with some free financial advice? Financial Planning Week is on the horizon and we bring you all the details of how to claim a free session with a chartered financial planner worth up to £500. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you all of this week's money news. In the 10 years since the financial crash, chances are that the value of your home has increased substantially. But people are getting increasingly nervous about what Brexit, and in particular a no-deal Brexit, could mean for the housing market. Last week, the Bank of England Governor Mark Carney spoke of a worst-case scenario where house prices could plunge by as much as 35% in the years following a disorderly trade deal. But even before he made those comments, buyers and sellers were facing falling transaction levels and reports of stalling house price growth in London and the South East. So what should we make of current markets? Joining me now to discuss are James Pickford, the Deputy Money Editor, and Richard Donnell, Research Director at Housing Market Analyst Hametrack. Welcome, gentlemen. So, James, I'll start with you. You chaired a packed property debate at the FT Weekend Festival and wrote up the key points in last week's edition of FT Money. What's the state of play? Well, it was a very lively panel and yes, the experts who were on the panel came out with some very interesting points. It was a a mixed picture. That was one of the key things in that uh, the the property market is at different stages uh, in different parts of the country. So London prices are are flat or falling and in other parts of the country, uh, activity is is really ramping up and, and prices are going up much more quickly. But that leaves an interesting dilemma, I suppose, for people who are trying to decide whether to either to you know, risk stretch themselves on, on their own house or buy a buy to let or, or, or even sell their existing holdings. And one of the things that came across quite clearly is that people are being a bit more reticent, um, not only because they don't quite know where the market is going in a lot of places, but because of things like Brexit, where you don't know whether, where the economy is going to be mm-hmm. in, in two or three years' time. You think, well, am I prepared to take a risk on either my own property or, or something for investment if I'm not quite sure you know, whether where interest rates, inflation, uh, jobs growth and, and the local economy will be then? Well, Richard, bringing you in now, I mean, property can be a very sentimental investment, but you have access to hard data. So where do you see the market today and what do you think of Mr Carney's apocalyptic warnings 
Well, the rate of house price growth has certainly slowed um, largely because of the underperformance in London. I mean, London acts has got a big impact on, on the overall trend mm. in the market. So growth in London is flat to falling slightly in nominal terms. I think the biggest story is around transaction volumes, which remained flat. But again, in London, the southeast, they're down 15 to 20 percent because a lot of buyers don't need to buy um, and have, might have taken on as much debt as they can or they don't want to come into the market as investors. So I certainly think we've seen a slight withdrawal of demand. And I think what, what's happening is prices are just really aligning to what today's buyers are prepared to spend. And that's the big theme. And certainly the difference between asking prices and actual selling prices in, in London, you said last weekend, is about 10% now, which is the highest it's been for a long time. Yes, in central areas, primarily. And then the closer you get to central London, that's where the kind of greatest pressure's been on, on prices. Um, the further afield in London, if you go out to commuter areas of London out into the southeast, um, there's the gap between sales and asking prices has opened up, but it's not quite as big as it is in, in central areas of London. So potentially the opportunity to strike a hard bargain if you are somebody in the market buying. But another point well made at the festival and in James's feature was the fragmented nature of the market. The story is very different across the your across the UK as your data shows, Richard. Yes. So I think you know the housing market is made of thousands of, of sub markets and again the housing cycle's unfolding. So the speed at which house prices increase is all down to the economic cycle, jobs growth, incomes growth, um, how how keen local Households are to sort of price in lower mortgage rates into, into housing, and that's that's accelerated away in London, as we know. House prices are up sort of eighty percent on where they were in two thousand and nine. But actually, across about a fifth of the housing market, we've still got house prices lower in nominal terms than they were in 2008. So again, you know, there's there's, there's a real variation across the country. So uh, where's the worst place to own a house then from that point well, of view? Well, I wouldn't let's say where the worst place is. I mean, the, the place where house prices just haven't recovered um, that much. It's, it's, it's parts of Scotland, um, parts of the northeast of England. It's where the economy is just not creating enough jobs. There's a lot of choice of housing. There's a lack of, there's, there, there's no problem with scarcity. It's all about the local economy stimulating demand for housing for people to want to get on and buy a house, buy a bigger house, etc. Well, hence the Brexit fears, which were, of course, you know, it wasn't housing prices falling by 35% wasn't his only warning. He was talking about how unemployment specifically and uh, shock rise in inflation and perhaps interest rates could kind of lead to that scenario. But what was your take on that? I think look, the, the Bank of England is a scenario testing every year. There's always quite a big, chunky, double-digit price fall uh, attached in all of the scenarios. I think that the housing market, and again, particularly in the south of England, I mean, there is a sensitivity to any increase in interest rates, which was the big sort of one of the elements um, was the increase in mortgage rates. And I think um, households are are sort of pricing in mortgage rates at sort of two, two and a, two and a half percent. Obviously, everyone's being stress tested. They're proving they can afford a seven percent mortgage rate. But if we were to have a higher interest rates, there was an impact on the economy. Then you know the housing market is driven by the economy, and so if there's problems in the economy, then there'll be a knock-on impact on the housing market. James, bringing you in, I mean. Buy-to-let investors, what specific issues are they facing in this market? Well, the last three or four years, they've had some very um, difficult news in terms of taxes, a string of tax and regulations that that have come in, changes to um, particularly the way, uh, the the, the amount they have to pay when they buy, and also uh, the loss of tax relief for higher higher earners on um, mortgage interest payments. And that's for for many of them, particularly those who are high highly leveraged uh, landlords, that is going to uh, really eat into their profits. The other thing that's changed is there are in, in new constraints have been introduced on the amount that they can borrow, 
and particularly if you're if you're if you have a, a, a large portfolio, mm. you now have to be judged if you're buying another house on the the viability of your entire portfolio. So some lenders have said, well, actually, we're not we're not going to bother doing this anymore because it's just too much it's too much to do and to judge other people's lending decisions to in order to underwrite those those loans. So. Buy to let uh, people are uh, and there is still um, activity and you know, particularly in the places where Richard has mentioned that are are thriving. But what you're finding is that buy to let investors who might have bought in London and South East because that's where they live and they you know, they're, they're feel comfortable buying locally are now uh, spreading further afield and buying in Manchester or Liverpool places with fast growth and and student po- you know growing student po- student populations. But of course that brings its own risks because it's arm's length investment. Indeed. And for those considering a move or a housing purchase now, Richard, or even perhaps parents preparing to act as BOMAD, the bank of mum and dad, which is a significant driver of transactions right now, what's the feeling inside the tent from those people? I think it's just about um, absolutely there's some sort of short term considerations about what's going to happen. But I think, you know, buying a home is a long term decision, particularly buying and investing. I think, you know, we know that 40 percent of investors are buying because it's their pension you know, it's part of their pension planning. So they want to they're taking a long term view. The average household today lives in a house for 20 years. So I think it's about making the right decision. It's about getting on the housing ladder at the right point and taking a long term view. You know, will I be happy in that home for the next 10 or 15 years? I think previously in previous cycles, high inflation, um, things moving around a lot more. I think, you know, people could sort of afford to take a shorter term view of a home they bought with a view to sort of stepping up the ladder quicker. I think that the big feature now is that first time buyers are really getting on the ladder into a home that they're prepared to live in and almost grow their family in. And that's been a real difference this time around. So I think you, know, you can't really put your life on hold forever. If you can afford it and you want to take a long term view, then you should, you should carry on and, and try and drive a hard bargain. And finally, James, what do you see happening in the run up to Brexit Day at the end of March? Do you think we're going to see a bit of a pause in the housing market until then? Um, it's, it, as with anything to do with Brexit, it, it's very hard to say for sure until we know more. But the uh, some of the experts who, who spoke about this um, at our festival was, were pitching a sort of five percent uh, fall in, in prices in in the quarter uh, leading up to or immediately after Brexit, because that's when you you see the results uh, the, the quarter just after Brexit. But Others are saying if we have a hard Brexit, it could it could be hard. You know, it's likely to be a lot harder as people just say, "Well, I'm I'm going to I'm going to sit on my hands and wait until this passes, and we all know what's what, what's uh, ahead of us in future in, in economic terms." Well, thanks very much there to James Pickford, deputy editor of FT Money, and Richard Donnell at Home Track. You can read the full feature for free online now. Is property still a good investment? At ft.com/money, and we will of course continue to cover the ups and downs of the property market and FT Money in the coming weeks and months. Now, the future for the property market will be among the issues that we'll be debating at the next FT Money Reader event. What would a no-deal Brexit mean for your finances? To be held in central London on the evening of Monday, the 8th of October, I'll be chairing a panel of experts, including the mighty Jim Pickard, the FT's chief political correspondent, and the even mightier James Blitz, the FT's Whitehall editor. You will get the opportunity to quiz them, including Michael Martin from Seven Investment Management, and the ticket price of £35 includes canapes and a glass of wine two if you're quick so buy the tickets and view full terms and conditions go to ft.com slash brexit event that's ft.com slash brexit event 
Has your future been repriced? That was the question Meredith Somerset Webb asked in her weekend comment column as she looked back on the 10 years since the financial crisis. She joins me on the line now to tell us a bit more about it. Welcome, Merrin. Hi, Claire. So in your column, you argued that there are clear winners and losers since the financial crisis. Yeah, absolutely there are. I mean, there are obvious winners in that anyone who had wealth and held on to that wealth has seen that wealth grow enormously in nominal value. Also, of course, if you've held on to your job, uh, which most people did, you know, employment in the UK, there was obviously a sharp rise in unemployment at the beginning of the crisis, but employment in the UK has stayed very steady uh, all the way through. If you'd hung on to your job, and let's say, for example, that you had a mortgage at the beginning, a big mortgage with a high rate of interest on it, as the crisis progressed, that interest rate fell and fell and fell and fell and fell. So your housing costs at the same time fell and fell and fell as the value of that asset, the house, soared. So that group of people, people who um, had debt, which became much cheaper, and people who had assets, which have become much more valuable, have done extremely well over the last decade. On the other side... Well, I was going to say... What? On the other side, yeah. A lot of people who, um, I, I call it your future being repriced because that's exactly what has happened. So let's say that you weren't on the property ladder at the beginning as house prices soared. The amount of money that you have to save for a deposit in order to be able to buy a house has gone up exponentially. So it used to be maybe you needed to save £20,000. Now you have to save £40,000. So that's a repricing of your future. It's the same with anyone saving money for retirement. You know, you could I think back 10 years and you could assume that you could get a return of 5% on anything that you had saved up and that could finance your future. Now, you can't do that anymore. You have to assume something more like 2 or 3%, probably less. So your future has also been repriced. If you're saving for retirement, you have to save double what you were saving before to get the same income. And that's what I mean when I say repriced. You have to have double what you needed before. And that changes the dynamics of your future completely. Completely, and it's a very big deal. It is a very big deal, and also it's something on the pension side that obviously we probably won't see the effects of for a generation or. Well, or you say that, but you know, you see it now. You see it now in the stress that people are under in, say, for example, their late forties, their early fifties, when you start thinking about how you're going to survive in your old age, and you look at the money you have saved, and you think, "Oh my God." All I can get out of that money is this tiny income. And so you see it, I think, in the attitude of people that age towards their consumption and towards their working lives. It's very stressful. It is a very big stress. And um, the obvious question to ask is, QE has obviously had these big side effects, but what would the alternative would have looked like if the banks hadn't been bailed out 10 years ago? Well, it's, you know, it's impossible to answer that question. This is the greatest monetary policy experiment ever seen. So we don't know what else could have happened. We know that there's that you know banking crises are not new. We know that. We know that they've happened over and over and over again over the generations. This is the first time that this response has been used. So what would have happened if, for example, in the UK, we had treble deposit insurance overnight in order to maintain trust in the banking system, done a bit of bailout, and then attempted to go forward with a normal interest rate policy? Would it have been 
absolutely appalling. It probably would have been pretty shocking for a couple of years. But would it then have led us, would we then have been saved from this slow burn of pain of the last 10 years, which I think is going to change our politics for a very long time? So the redistribution, that well, nature's redistribution, you could call a really nasty recession or a really nasty uh, contraction. Nature's redistribution takes away from those who have taken too much risk, takes away from those who are very deeply in debt, takes away from those who have benefited from fast rising asset prices and effectively returns to everybody else. Well, that didn't happen. So what we're seeing now is increasing calls for redistribution from across the political spectrum. I mean, I say every time John McDonnell opened, opens his mouth, you see the consequences, you hear the consequences of QE in this very strong call for redistribution now. It didn't happen naturally, so it's going to have to ha- happen artificially via the political cycle. And I suspect that an awful lot of the people who have cheered QE for the last decade are sure as hell not going to be cheering that. Well, finally, tell us a bit about what you're going to be, <laughs> what, what grenades you're going to be lobbing in your column in this Saturday's My money section. My columns are not grenades. <laughs> oh, this week, um, I'm going to talk more about what works and what doesn't work in fund management because, you know, it's a really interesting. If you look at the, the history of successful managers and successful returns over the long term, you can see that very clearly that there are things that work. Value investing works, momentum investing works, and small cap investing has a a good history of working as well. And then there are all sorts of things that don't really work particularly well. But fund managers, in the main, are drawn to the things that don't work particularly well. And that's because the things that do work very well, momentum, value, very often play out over quite long periods of time. And so career risk comes into that very strongly. So I want to write about momentum investing, which is very rarely written about, to see whether it's possible for retail investors using funds to invest using momentum and do well over the long term. And I suspect it might be. And I'm looking, I've got various various uh, sources on this, but I'm looking in particular at the moment uh, at a book called Clueless by a man called uh, Brian Dennehy, who um, runs a fund business, which I'm sure lots of uh, our readers will have, will have heard of. And uh, he's in very keen on momentum investing and believes that you can use funds to do it. So I'm going to have a look at that week. I think it's fascinating stuff and hugely neglected by the industry. Brilliant. And clueless, of course, not to be mixed up with the movie not um, to be of the same name. No, no in this. <laughs> well, thanks very much there to Merrin Somerset Webb. It's always a joy to have you on the podcast. You can read all of Merrin's columns online. Go to ft.com slash money. And this weekend's instalment will go up on Friday morning or read it in the FT Money section of the FT Weekend newspaper this Saturday. Finally, if I were to ask you what your financial goal in life was, would you even know the answer to the question? We spend so much of our lives working hard to earn money, it's hard to find the time to think about what all the money we're earning is ultimately for. So the solution could come in the form of Financial Planning Week, which begins on Wednesday the 3rd of October this year, offering UK consumers a free one-hour session with a financial planner worth up to £500. Want to know more? Well, joining me now is Jacqueline Lockie, a certified financial planner from the CISI. Welcome, Jackie. Thank you. So what are the sorts of conversations people will be having during Financial Planning Week? Well, there can be very wide-ranging conversations. But just as Merrin was saying, just taking an example, we were just t- talking about pensions. Mm. You know, all of us have concerns over our pensions and that buying power of our income in retirement when we decide to give up work. So many of us are choosing to work a little bit longer or don't really know what to do. They might, People might not 
particularly like their jobs or and so all of those questions can come out during financial planning week and really it's a chance for all of us to stand back and say okay well what do I want out of life you know it's about getting your money to work for you for what you want to achieve so as we as Merrin was just saying you know things like your retirement goals it's not just about looking at your pension it's about looking at wider things as well things like you know protection of your assets if if you were to fall ill or even die during you know before you got to your intended retirement age you know there are all sorts of concerns that we have to protect our family our loved ones and you know a growing number of us are dealing with what we call we're in the sandwich generation aren't we where you know we're looking after our parents and supporting them keeping a watch out what's going on there and not only from you know a health point of view but also from a financial welfare point of view and also you know many people have younger children as well where they're trying to think about where you're where to go to school and then that has an impact on where they want to live so all of those things are coming together this giant jigsaw puzzle and the financial planners are there to help us piece all that together. So how is a financial planner different from an independent financial advisor? So a financial planner will look at all of our goals. So it will they will sit down and say to you, you know, what is it that you want to achieve out of life? This isn't about looking at a particular product. This is giving you that chance to step back and say, okay, well, there are certain things that I think all of us want to achieve in life, you know, to retire on a particular income or maybe to retire to the coast or something like that, you know, all of those sorts of things. And it gives them, it gives us us all a chance to stand back and say, okay, let's set some goals. Let's set aside, you know, the worries about how much money I have or do I have enough and all of that kind of thing, right? right now. And let's really sit down and think for ourselves, think it through properly. What do we want to achieve? How can we get our money to work as as best as possible to achieve those goals? So that's financial planning. Financial advice is really about a regulated product. So how much do I need to invest in my particular pension? If I have an ISA, where should I put that investment? So that is a specific product recommendation to fill a particular need. But financial planning steps back and look at, looks at the overarching aims that you want and then will help you and guide you through to plugging those gaps with perhaps particular investments or products. So 52 firms across the UK have signed up. Um, If listeners wanted to sign up for a free session with them, how could they do so? And, And also, why are they giving this away for free? So our certified financial planners are coming together to to give something back to the public to help people understand the power that financial planning can have on their lives to support them by giving them that plan, you know, that five year overlook, you know, getting some processes in place for you to help you move forward. Maybe it's to help get you out of debt or to plan whatever it is for the future. So there are 52 of our certified financial planning firms out there ready and waiting to help you. You can contact them via our website or on the telephone and they will give you at least one hour's free time to put something back to give you the support that you need. Okay, and the website, if you want to sign up, is cisi.org slash fpweek, cisi.org slash fpweek for a list of all of the firms that are taking part. Or you can call 0207 645 And Jackie tells me you can do these one hour sessions in person, over the phone or even over Skype. Absolutely. 
Excellent. I'd like to see a bit of innovation in the financial planning field. Well, thanks very much there to Jackie Lockie. You can read much more about the benefits of financial planning in FT Money this week. Uh, the piece, Does Your Income Bring You Joy or Sadness, from our wealth man columnist Jason Butler, looks at what financial planning could do for you. It's a great piece. Read it now at ft.com slash money. That's it from The Money Show this week. If you would like to get in touch with our reporters or panel of experts, you can email us money at ft.com. Follow us on Twitter at ftmoney. We will be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.